Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to You Don't Have Very Far to Go, as recorded by Candy Staten and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Red Simpson. Best known for singing a string of successful trucking-themed country songs in the 1960s and 70s, Red Simpson was also a highly influential behind-the-scenes songwriter from Bakersfield, California. Buck Owens recorded more than 30 Simpson originals, including the top 10 hits Gonna Have Love, Sam's Place, and Kansas City Song. Additionally, Red penned perennial standards such as Close Up the Honky Tonks and the aforementioned You Don't Have Very Far to Go. As an artist, he released a total of seven albums for Capitol and logged seven charting singles on Billboard's country rankings, including the top 40 hits Roll Truck Roll and The Highway Patrol. He is perhaps best known, however, for singing I'm a Truck, which hit the top five in 1972. Simpson played guitar on most of Buck Owens' recording dates in the mid-1960s, including sessions that produced hits such as Buckaroo and Waitin' in Your Welfare Line. He went on to play numerous sessions with Merle Haggard, who referred to Simpson as a hillbilly hippie. Merle recorded a couple of Simpson originals on his 1969 album Pride and What I Am, and Red went on to play guitar on Haggard's classic live LP, Okie from Muskogee. A half dozen other Simpson compositions have been recorded by Haggard, who wrote A Bar in Bakersfield in tribute to his old friend. As a songwriter, Simpson enjoyed additional charting singles by Charlie Walker, Wynn Stewart, Junior Brown, and others. His songs have also been recorded by Ferlin Husky, Johnny Paycheck, Wanda Jackson, The Birds, Graham Parsons, Dave Dudley, Roy Clark, Roseanne Cash, Steve Warner, Lucinda Williams, Alan Jackson, Dwight Yoakam, and many more. Sadly, Red Simpson died on January 8, 2016. This is the final in-depth interview with the California country legend who Bob Dylan once called the forgotten man of the Bakersfield Sound. Scott, I know that this interview has particular significance for you, just personally. Yeah. um, Red Simpson is one of the pillars of the brand of country music that has come to be called the Bakersfield Sound, uh, which is basically country music that came out of Bakersfield, California, most famously with uh, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard. And um, I've done a lot of research and writing on the Bakersfield Sound, and so I have known read for several years now. Um, and you know, we, we recently recorded this interview for Songcraft, um, and then sadly read passed away, um, on January 8th. And so this is sort of an unusual interview for us. Right. Um, in that it's the first time that we've, someone that we have interviewed for the show has, has passed away. Um, much less, passed away before we had an opportunity to to upload the episode so it's it's kind of a bittersweet uh, experience to listen to this interview in light of you know what we now know yeah. um, I spent a good bit of time with with red I interviewed him uh, you know nine or ten times and uh, went to see him play whenever I was in Bakersfield um, and you know he was uh, a very sweet man. And uh, not always the most verbose, <laughs> but always very kind and, yeah. uh, and and very generous and and very willing to um, share 
time with me and to to answer my questions. Uh, sometimes he was probably thinking, "Man, when are you going to shut up and leave me alone with all these questions?" But he was, um, you know, in addition to being a very talented and, and probably underrated songwriter, uh, just he really was a, a, a good guy. Yeah. Well, you know, and you can tell. I mean, anyone who listens to this interview can tell that you had really earned his friendship and his trust uh, over all that time that you've spent together. And you know, your your efforts to kind of dive into and preserve so much of that that legacy um, really came out in, in the box set that you worked on for Bear yeah. Family Records. Yeah, I produced a, a five CD box set that came with a 108 page hardback book. Wow. Um, and the book was like all of Red's photos and the story um, of his life and career, which I wrote as a result of, of those interviews. A whole lot of his music had... Um, was out of print. It wasn't available digitally. Some of it had, had never been made available digitally. So we, we put together this box set that is pretty much all of his recordings from the 1950s up through 1984, which was the year that he retired from the road. Um, he would still play shows occasionally, but he kind of went into semi-retirement at that point. So it gathers up all of his music his memories, his photos, and man, I am so grateful now that I had the opportunity to oh, yeah. to be a part of that. And and just his work is collected in one place. Um, so he leaves behind a legacy of, of great friendships and a lot of people um, whose lives he touched in Bakersfield. And also he has left behind this incredible body of work, which I'm so gratified to see. Um, in one place where people can can access it and, and enjoy it. And, you know, it's kind of like a lifetime achievement award in, in the world of Roots music to have a, a Bear Family box set. Yeah. Um, and, and really, it has a lot of meaning for me because I have... Um, sort of a freelance career writing liner notes and and books and writing about music history and the bear family box set on red simpson was actually the first project that i ever did Mm -hmm. so i really poured my heart and soul into it it came out of just a real desire to uh to see that happen yeah well you know i i enjoyed making some of those trips up to bakersfield with you you know learning a, a lot about the sound and the history up there and it was an honor to be a part of this interview that we're releasing now so let's check it out yeah absolutely Red, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Good to be here. You were born in Arizona, but came to California with your family in 1937 during that whole Dust Bowl migration. And I know that you guys lived in one of the um, FSA camps on the outskirts of Bakersfield. In fact, it was the the migrant camp that kind of inspired uh, Grapes of Wrath. Um, talk about what life was like in the camps and how you guys were viewed by the native Californians at the time. Well, I don't think they liked us too much coming in. <laughs> yeah. Wow. They liked us going out, though. <laughs> <laughs> Called us Okies. Hmm. Just uh, kind of, you know, belittled us. Yeah. Because we were poor. Oh, wow. Still poor. <laughs> a broke legend, what I am. <laughs> now, was there a lot of music around when you were growing up? Oh, definitely. Uh, there was music every night, just about. You had a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Old country song, Ernest Tubb, T. Texas Styler, and a bunch of them, Gene Autry and Roy Rogers. And how did you first get into making music yourself? Yeah, we went to church every Sunday, and I finally learned one song down there and sang it, and that shocked my family. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know I was, they was a singer. Well, I wasn't then. I just a little red-headed boy that liked to sing a little bit. Right. You remember what song it was you sang? 
Zachos, I think it was. Huh. Zachos was a little wee man, little wee man was he. Climbed up in something tree, Savior for the sea. And as the Savior walked along, he looked up in the tree. He said, Zachos, come down from there. We're going to your house for tea. <laughs> we didn't even have no tea. <laughs> <laughs> My brother Caldwell, yeah? Mm, yeah. His big, big, large wife played piano. <laughs> he said, did anybody else want to sing? And I raised my hand, and he said, okay, Joe, come on up here. And uh, after that, he started calling me Red. I had red hair. We rode every morning out on a cotton truck, sang on the truck a lot, and made pretty good money then, I thought. It will probably, because so many people came to Bakersfield back in those Dust Bowl days uh, from places like Texas and, and Arizona and Missouri uh, and Arkansas, there was a big um, country music fan base in town. And I understand when you were a kid that you would take your shoeshine kid out to the clubs and, and would get the opportunity to meet, you know, various country stars that way, people, you know, like Tex Ritter. They all came into the Rhythm Rancho here in Bakersfield. And I'd go out every Saturday night and shine shoes and right. make a little money, you know. Yeah. Meat picking cotton. <laughs> <laughs> Tex Ritter was the biggest one I met. Oh. I shined his boots one time. Yeah. Uh, he kind of got mad at me. I, right. I, they, we, when we when he got through, I said, Mr. Ritter, could I shine your boots? And he said, why, sure, son. Come on out here to the car. Right. And he was parked right outside the building there. And it was just a little bitty light bulb. You couldn't. Couldn't see anything okay. <laughs> too good. And so I shined his boots, and I thought they were black, but they were dark green. Oh, no. <laughs> they looked black to me, and they're black now. <laughs> Mr. Ritter said, son, you just ruined my favorite pair of green oh, boots. Oh, my word. And then I, t- I took off running, and he said, well, come back here, come back here. So I'll go back over there, and he handed me a dollar and said, that's a pretty good shot. Oh, man. <laughs> then, then years later, I was on the Grand Ole Opry, and... He was the MC. Wow. And he he got up and he said, Let's give that boy a hand. <laughs> he sure couldn't shine shoes too good, but boy, he could sing. You know. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, I know that your older brother, Buster, was a musician who played upright bass with Bill Woods. And Bill Woods, of course, was kind of the godfather of the Bakersfield music scene. He was the, the, guy who gave Buck Owens his first real job. Of course, uh, he hired Merle Haggard. He was the guy that everybody kind of looked to in town as an encourager and a mentor. Um, and I know your your brother died um, when you were in your late teens. Yeah, he had the Hodgson's disease. He was a, a veteran in the veterans hospital. and uh, He died, and that, that kind of cut my world in half. Mm. Because uh, he always told me, when you get 21, we'll get us a band started. And wow. I never, did, never did make it. Wow. And after Buster died, I I know Bill Woods kind of became sort of a surrogate big brother and, and musical mentor to you, right? Yeah, he sure was. Wow. Old Bill. Yeah, we wrote a lot of songs together, me and old Bill. Uh, he t- taught me a lot on the guitar and uh, piano. I'll say him and Buck both 
taught me a little piano. Yeah, and Buck Owens was playing in Bill Wood's band at the Blackboard, which is kind of the most legendary Bakersfield honky-tonk from those days. I know you were spending a lot of time with, with Bill, of course, and then through him uh, more and more with Buck as well. Right, he lived on Quantico Street, Quantico. And uh, Buck used to take me out on the back porch out there. He had a piano on the back porch. We'd go out there in the evening and pound on that, and he'd show me chords and this and that. Of course, Bill did. He played piano, too, and uh, I had two good buddies there. Now, there was a group on Capitol Records in the 1950s called the Farmer Boys, and they were the first act to cut a Red Simpson song on a major label when they recorded Someone to Love in 1957. Someone who really cares about me How did that come about? I think I, I took it over. I, I was uh, driving an ice cream truck, and uh, one day I went by Bucks and played him that song, and he said, well, let me play this for the farmer boys, see what they think of it. And next thing I knew, we had a record on it on Capitol Records. Nice. <laughs> I thought it was rich. <laughs> it's the big time. Yeah. yeah, you didn't have to drive that ice cream truck anymore at that point. <laughs> yeah. Right. I made $19 on a, in two weeks on an ice cream truck. Yeah. It, it'd be one kid come up behind me there, and he didn't have money for ice cream. He'd be five more, wouldn't have any. I'd, I'd just give him one anyhow. You know? <laughs> Not great for business, I guess. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you... You said a minute ago, you know, I thought I was rich then. And the thing that a lot of people might not realize is that just because you have success as a songwriter doesn't mean you're necessarily living on easy street. And you were um, very much a working musician in the Bakersfield clubs. And as a result of that, um, in 1957, you got the chance to make your very first record as an artist with a song uh, that you also wrote called Sweet Love. Sweet love, huh? a sweet love. Are you talking to me? The love. I love. Really? Sweet love. I love you. Sweet love. Sweet kiss. A sweet kiss. Mine? I can't resist. Wow. Sweet kiss from you. Oh boy. Sweet love. Now, a lot of people might be surprised to hear that that song does not sound like what we think of as the quote-unquote Bakersfield sound. Um, and I understand that the music that was being played in the clubs back then was actually pretty diverse. Um, so talk about some of the music uh, that you guys were, were playing in the clubs that sort of went beyond the boundaries of that steel guitar, Telecaster twang that people think of as the Bakersfield sound. Oh, we did Fats Domino, and then we do Lefty for Sale, or something yeah, like that. Right. Just mixed it up, and everybody seemed to be happy in them days. Yeah. <laughs> They're dancing, you know, spending money, and that's what paying us. Well, like Merle said, that we were making whiskey money then, <laughs> not just beer money. We were <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Well, yeah, and... 
I know that you and Merle at that time were uh, playing in a band together um, that was led by Johnny Barnett at another Bakersfield club called The Lucky Spot. And it was when you were working together with Merle in that band that you wrote um, You Don't Have Far to Go, which has become one of your your most well-known songs. Um, Tell us about that. Well, I was about two blocks from the club, and I got this idea for this song, and time I got to the lucky spot, I had it wrote. Merle was there on playing bass, and I played piano, and Johnny Barnett played guitar, and I told Johnny, I said, just wrote this song. He said, well, well, let us hear it then. So I sang it, and Merle said, boy, if I ever get a record deal, I want to cut that song. Well, I said, Merle, the way you sang, you ain't ever going to get no record deal. You ain't kind of argued that. Well, was I, was I wrong? Yeah, I guess so. You always find a way to hurt my pride. If I'm not crying, you're not satisfied. I don't know why you want to hurt me so But if you're trying to break my heart You don't have very far to go Yeah, he told me last time I saw him I'm gonna cut it till it's a hit (laughs) Yeah, well he's cut that song like three or four times already, hadn't he? (laughs) Yeah So you eventually signed a publishing deal with Central Songs in Los Angeles, which was run by a guy named Cliffy Stone. And he started helping you get your songs cut by big artists, uh, beginning with King of Fools, which Buck Owens recorded and put on the B-side of his hit single, Save the Last Dance for Me. Um, And then a little later, Buck recorded your song, Close Up the Honky Tonks. Um, and that's another one of those songs that has become a classic. What do you remember about writing that? I remember I was sitting out under, it was in the summertime, I was sitting out un, un, under a, a chinaberry tree in, here in Bakersfield, and I just got the idea for it. I uh, was thinking about honky-tonks, and listen, Harlan Howard had a record out called uh, Cozy Inn, it was about a honky-tonk. Well, if we can have one, we can have more honky-tonks. Right. Yeah, there's room enough in the world for more than one <laughs> honky-tonk song, right? So I just wrote that thing and pushed that buck here. And he said, I think he's had the best cut on it at all. Yeah, I mean, that's a classic record. And from what I understand, Buck was playing that song live at the Golden Nugget in Las Vegas when uh, Charlie Walker heard it, he recorded it, and that actually became your first top 20 single as a songwriter. Yeah, next thing I knew, Buck said, you got your Charlie Walker record, and I said, who the hell's Charlie Walker? (laughs) (laughs) So you're going to find out, (laughs) and I did, too. She'll never settle down. Well, Close Up the Honky Tonks, or Close All the Honky Tonks, as uh, Charlie Walker called it when he recorded it, was a song that was credited to you solo. 
Um, and then in late 1964 and early 1965, uh, Buck Owens recorded a handful of your songs, including The Band Keeps Playing On, um, Let the Sad Times Roll On, and I Want No One But You. Um, those were credited to you and Buck together as co-writers. Um, talk about how those songs came about. Yeah, I'd call him up sometimes at night and early morning. Say, Buck, I got a, just wrote a new song. Said, right. Well, let me hear it. So I'd sing it for him, and he said, I want to cut it. Buck wanted part of the publishing on just about everything, and, huh. and uh, that's how that worked. And yeah. then he, he did about 30, I think. Oh, wow. Pretty good average Jeez. for an old redheaded boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I've heard you talk before about how Buck was a good song doctor. He was. He could, he could fix them up, boy. If it needed a little work on it, he could, Buck knew just how to put it in, you know the words in where they should be yeah well buck's recording of gonna have love became your first top 10 single on the billboard chart in october of 1965 i'm gonna have love one more time what did it feel like to finally have that kind of success after you had really been working on your craft for a good 10 years or more up to that point? felt great, I'll tell you. I, I couldn't believe I was up in the top 10 on the country charts, but it, it happened. So when you get an idea for a new song, um, do they tend to come really quickly, or do you typically mull over the idea and work on it over time? Uh, a little bit of both, yeah. If, if it's a good song, I I probably work on it a little harder than I usually do, but uh, I, I can usually tell if it's going to be a good one. Huh. How, how can you tell that? When people look at you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, where do you get your ideas? Just from like books or TV or things you hear people talking? I get it from everything. TV, huh. uh, listen to people talk in a bar or something. Right, yeah. Or uh, just... Looking out at, at the daytime, some you know, oh. I get an idea for something, right? And uh, I just scribble it down, some of it, and hmm. then maybe years later I re- go back to that same song and rewrite it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I know that your publisher Cliffy Stone was getting your songs recorded by people like Ferlin Husky, who had a, a charting single with I'm Not Me Without You Anymore. Um, and then, of course, at the same time, Buck Owens is, is still recording your songs. Um, in May of 1965, he cut Someone With No One To Love. Um, but instead of just cutting the song, he also brought you into the studio to play on the session. Um, in fact, you would play on all of Buck's sessions for the rest of that year, um, including on hits like Buckaroo and Waiting In Your Welfare Line. Uh, describe a typical... Buck Owens and the Buckaroos recording session at Capitol Records with their producer Ken Nelson. Well, first it was, you'd hear Doyle Holly complaining about how I have to play that 12 string. <laughs> Buck said, Red, you don't mind playing that 12 string, do you? I said, No, I don't mind. Money's money. So <laughs> he had me on 12 string, Doyle Holly on uh, 6 string, and it seemed like there was one more. Well, we had Bob Morse. I remember him. Good bass yeah, player. Doyle Holly would play the bass live, and then Bob would play it on the sessions. Yeah. Buck usually had it all worked out, usually, and, and he knew how to get them boys moving like they should, you know. Yeah. 
Well, Buck recorded an astounding number of your songs, 19 in 1965 alone, including Sam's Place, which hit number one on the Billboard chart. You can always find me down at Sam's Place For that's where the gang all hangs around There's old Shemmy's shaking Tina She hails from Pasadena She's always got a big smile on her face There's old hoochie-coochie Hattie She comes from Cincinnati Yeah, there's always a party at Sam's Place uh, Was Sam's Place a real place? No, I got the idea from a Harlan Howard song. And, and uh, I had it almost done, and then Buck's dad uh, finished it up when he, his dad was out there mowing the lawn the one day at the ranch, and Buck was over cussing somebody out because they'd run over his water hole. <laughs> <laughs> really? And uh, so his dad said, why don't you try old Shimmy Shaking Tina, Hells from Pasadena. Buck said, I think that's it. So we took wow. it and put it down. That's the way it went. Amazing. Uh, thank, thanks, Buck's dad. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, one thing that I admire about your songwriting, Red, is that you were so skilled at topical material. You wrote um, six songs on Buck's first Christmas album. Uh, I think you wrote about five songs on his gospel album, Dust on Mother's Bible. And I feel like all of your experience hanging around in the studio with Ken Nelson kind of combined with your ability to, to tackle specific themes kind of paid off when uh, Ken was looking for an artist to make an album of truck driving songs and you fit the bill. Tell us how that came about. Well, I was, I was home one day and telephone rang. It was Cliffy Stone. Hmm. He said, can you come down here Monday? And I said, yeah, well, what's up? Capital wants to sign you up. Huh? Well. Said, me? Yeah, I said, well, I'll be there an hour and a half. <laughs> not, we, uh, not waiting until Monday. Yeah. Then we got, we got it put together and then put out that Roll Truck Roll album. Yeah, top 10 country album. And, you know, it's, it's funny to me because the liner notes on the back of the LP say, ever since he climbed into a trailer cabin and started steering for destinations everywhere, Red has been singing and composing songs of the open road. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I never drove a truck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but what's yeah. crazy about it is like on, on those records, the references that you used and the terminology that you used was super specific and really accurate to being a truck driver. Uh, how did you find all that stuff out You know, to put it in the songs? Mostly uh, I heard a lot of it on records. Mm-hmm. And then, then Ken wanted uh, me to come back in and... Uh, he said he wanted to do a police album. I thought, oh, no. I'm going to ride back. Yeah. So we had the man behind the band. Yeah. Highway Patrol and a bunch of those. Guys. Yeah. And Highway Patrol was a charting single and definitely the best-known song um, from that album. I got a star on my car and one on my chest. A gun on my hip and the right to arrest. I am the guy who's a boss on this highway. So watch oh, what you're doing when you're driving my way. If you break the law, you'll hear from me. I know I'm a working for the state. I'm the highway patrol. Um, tell us how that came about. That came from Dennis Payne and Ray Rush. They had the song. And uh, I told him if they'd give me a third of it, that I'd record it. <laughs> <laughs> 
They fell for it. <laughs> where'd, you, where'd you learn that trick? <laughs> Mr. Owens, I think. Right, exactly. <laughs> wow. That only did that once. <laughs> um, well, I want to ask you, uh, you know, Johnny Paycheck recorded one of your songs called It's My Last Night in Town, and that was on his uh, At Carnegie Hall album from 1966. At Carnegie Hall kind of... Um, was a significant place for you in 1966. After you had signed with Capitol Records, um, Buck Owens invited you to be a part of, of his road show, um, and you had the opportunity to play at the legendary Carnegie Hall on March 26th, 1966. And as I understand, that turned out to be a pretty eventful night. Um, talk about that experience. Well, I signed with a booking agency and promoting and all that, and... and uh, Come to find out, they were they were paying me a uh, hundred dollars a night just to go on tour, and I think Buck and them were getting a thousand dollars for me because I'd had mm. something in the charts, and, and I I just had too much of it. Yeah. I got to touch that old Indian whiskey back there <laughs> in, in New York, and got got uh, head got smoking. Wow. Yeah. So so basically, they're charging the promoters a thousand bucks a night for you but you're only getting a hundred bucks that every night and so you go in and you confront buck and his manager jack mcfadden about it right and that's that's when it all hell breaks loose yeah i thought i was gonna have to hitchhike home from new york i thought <laughs> right. watch well, gonna be a long way wow and buck was pretty mad at me yeah of course jack mcfadden wasn't happy with me either right. but i'd found out their secrets see but that's all right i got to do it so you came back to bakersfield um, at that point, you and Buck parted ways, at least for a little while. But at the same time, your artist career was very much on the rise. Um, late in 1966, you were nominated as most promising male artist in Billboard magazine's annual country music poll. Uh, you were also nominated as most promising male vocalist by the Academy of Country Music. Um, did it become harder to find time to actually write songs while you're juggling the, the pressure of a successful artist career? Yeah, because I was always going on the road somewhere, it seemed like, and uh, takes a lot of your time traveling, you know. Right. Well, your artist career kept going on, and your fourth album, The Bakersfield Dozen, it was really kind of cobbled together from some records you had been making at Capitol all along that, that weren't about truck driving. And I think it's your best album. But it wasn't really a big commercial success. Did you feel like you were kind of getting pigeonholed as an artist since people really associated you primarily with trucking songs at that point? Yeah, I was getting shafted, I think. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But it's all right. You just hold on and keep going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe because of the not doing as many trucking songs or for whatever reason in 1968 your your deal with capital came to an end and you made kind of a a career adjustment you you left cliffy stone's central songs and signed with buck owens blue book publishing so obviously you and buck had had patched things up by that point um and the blue book deal worked out well when stewart cut yours forever which was released in 1969 um and then buck recorded kansas city song which was released in 1970 and went all the way to number two on the Billboard chart that year. So take care of you from me in Kansas City And honey, call me every now and then Take care of you from me in Kansas City Cause I'll miss you till you're in my arms again. Well, 
We just kind of buried the hatchet, I guess. I, hmm. I, I wasn't holding no grudge against them, but yeah. I didn't like the way I'd, I'd been treated. Sure. And I voiced my opinion real quick. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of smoothed things over. Yeah, we smoothed it out. Yeah, we, I was a little more careful than I was before. <laughs> <laughs> well, around 1968, um, you began playing live and in the studio quite a bit with Merle Haggard. And uh, he cut a couple more of your songs, um, Somewhere on Skid Row, and I Think We're Living in the Good Old Days, both of which appeared on the Pride in What I Am LP in 1969. Um, tell us a little bit about working with Merle. I'll tell you, Merle was such a good guy to... Merle always treated me great. Yeah, and you guys actually collaborated together on a song called Huntsville, right? Yeah, I wrote, wrote Huntsville. Merle didn't really quite think much of it, I don't think. She rewrote it and to put, he got his name on there too. That, that's all right. Merle, he does something, he earns it. He don't want to just take it. They're taking me down to Huntsville. I'm bringing in a load of time. They caught me on a caper that I planned for days And proved everything I'd done I'm on my way to Huntsville But I'm looking for a chance well, I understand that you were up in Portland in the early 1970s when you ran into a guy named Gene Breeden, um, who was a, a guitar player who you had known for a good while, and he was starting a label called Portland Records. And Gene pitched you a song that would become your biggest hit as an artist. Um, I'm talking, of course, about uh, Hello, I'm a Truck. There'd be no truck drivers if it wasn't for us trucks. No double clutching gear, jamming, coffee, cranking nuts. They'd drive their way roaring, and they have all the luck. There'd be no truck drivers if it wasn't for us trucks. Tell us about how that happened. Well, I, he was playing at the wagon there in Portland, at club, wagon club, and right. So Gene asked me, he said, "Are you recording?" I said, "No." And he said, "Would you like to record?" And I said, "I don't have a label." Hmm. He said, "Well, I've just started one. You want to get on it?" And I said, "Yeah." So I said, "What are we going to record?" And he said, "Well, I've got this one song here you might like, called Hello, I'm a Truck." I said, you're a what? <laughs> said, Hello, I'm a truck. <laughs> right. And so he played me that song, and bingo. Right. I recorded it, and we did a good session up there. And yeah. Tried to release it to Capitol. They wouldn't have nothing to do with it. Huh. It, was, it was on a small label, Portland Records. And uh, we we put it out, and Cliffy Stone went partners with us on the mailing and everything. So we mailed everything out of Central Songs Publishing down there. It started hitting everywhere. Everybody oh. was playing it, and we, we we had all kind of big major labels wanting wanting want that song. Yeah, you know, yeah, right. we want to release it. And Gene said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, oh, "I damn sure ain't giving it to Capital." <laughs> and so then after they'd been after so long enough to get it, it was two or three weeks, I guess, and. Uh, so I said, yeah, well, tell, tell, tell Capital we'll take that deal. Gene Breeden, he said, I ain't doing nothing. This all Red's deal. <laughs> and one time I had my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Things were good. Right. So I said, yeah, we'll take it with Capital. Boy, boom. It came out like a, a, a ton of roses. Big wow. old hit. Yeah. 
Well, I'm a truck went to number four in Billboard and number one in Record World magazine. Cashbox magazine named you the most promising artist of the year, um, while the Academy of Country Music nominated you for the second time as most promising male vocalist. Um, so in the middle of all this, Capitol Records signs you again. So you had been a Capitol artist, you lost the deal, now you're back on Capitol. But the second go around, you weren't recording down in Hollywood, you were doing all your recording at Gene Breeden's studio up north. Um, it sounds to me when I hear those records from the second Capitol era, like you're really happy. You're really enjoying yourself and you've fully come into your own as an artist. Very happy up there, yes. Gene was so good to work with and all the guys that played there. Yeah. Had a blind piano player. Huh. Fastest hands I've ever seen. Oh, man. Mm. <laughs> He'd run up and down that piano. Couldn't even see what he was doing. <laughs> he couldn't even see the light of cigarettes, but he damn sure play that piano. Uh, <laughs> Gino Keys was his name. <laughs> you know, another song that you wrote and recorded during your second stint on Capitol is Bill Woods from Bakersfield, you know, hearkening back to your old buddy Bill. Hello, this is Red Simpson, and this is a song about country music and about a man from Bakersfield and what he did for country music. tell you a story about a guitar picking man to me he is the greatest picker in the land he taught me how to play in G he taught me how to sing in key Bill Woods from Bakersfield he's the Bakersfield guitar man that's a song that was also cut by Merle what prompted you to write a song in tribute to Bill just kind of show him how I felt about him yeah he's my best friend for years and years I thought, well, I need to do something for Bill one of these days. Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's what I did. And uh, how did Merle end up uh, cutting that song? Well, he, we were down at the KLAC radio in L.A. Right, right. Sure. And Larry Scott had been down to Cliffy Stone's publishing company that day, and right, I one played of the DJs. him that song. And that night, well, Merle and Louie and Fuzzy and Bonnie and all of them came in, Merrill said, Louie, go back down there and get my guitar and fiddle. We're going to play a little music up huh. here. So <laughs> we did, and he brought up the, the instruments and everything. And, and before we got through, Larry Scott said, Red, do that song you wrote about Bill Woods. Huh. <laughs> I said, okay. So <laughs> I didn't even get it finished. <laughs> Merle jumped straight up out of his chair and he said, Bonnie, get the words of that song. We're going to cut that this week. Wow, that's great. <laughs> well, let me tell you about a song album. Yeah. Right. yeah, the right place, right time. Um, well, you left Capitol in 1974 and recorded for a number of small labels for the next decade. Um, and one of my favorite songs from your entire career was one that you released on the Cougar label in 1984 called Lucky Old Colorado. Lucky old Colorado You've got the girl of my dreams Cause she loves you, Colorado More than she ever loved now, that's yet another one that, that Merle ended up recording. Um, what's the story behind that song? Oh, that was 
about an ex-wife I had. Huh. Wanted to go move to Colorado. and She said, it's too hot out here. And I said, well, I'm not going to Colorado. It's too cold back here for me. <laughs> so she sh split for Denver, and hmm. I split for Bakersfield. Wow. That's how that came about. Yeah, so it's really a, a lost love kind of song. Yeah, first one I really had. Hmm. Well, it was on... Uh, Merle's Blue Jungle album from 1990 that he did his version of that song and there's another song on there called A Bar in Bakersfield that Merle has said is is about you and uh, by the 90s you were really starting to get some recognition for all of the roles that you had played not just as an artist but as a behind the scenes songwriter um, Junior Brown had a, a charting single with his version of Highway Patrol in, uh, in 1995 um, in 2006 uh, soul artist Candy Staten recorded You Don't Have Far to Go with a, a really new arrangement. Um, the following year, Dwight Yoakam did a very unique take on, on Close Up the Honky Tonks. And there's there's many other artists we could mention, Roseanne Cash, Lucinda Williams, Alan Jackson, people who have, have cut your songs, done their own spin on them over the years. Um, as a writer, do you like hearing other people's take on your songs? Oh, I love I loved hearing them done by other people because... I don't have to put up my voice. Been <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good friends down through the years, man. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, looking back, is there a song of your catalog that's your favorite? Not yet. <laughs> I'm still working at it. Right. Still chasing the perfect song. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Jericho Jones was a good song. Jericho, Jericho, preaching and traveling this land. In an old school bus made into a home Went me and God and Jericho, God and Jericho, God and Jericho Jones. That's interesting because that's one that I don't think was actually ever released at the time and it didn't actually come out till the um, till the box set in, in 2012. What is it about that song that, that you particularly like? Uh, it was a story song, more like a story about a... And an old guy that uh, traveled around in an old school bus, and he adopted this boy, and uh, he taught him right from wrong. And yeah, it's a great, it's a great song. Um, you know, so many great songs, so many great records. You you play all these various instruments. Um, You've contributed so much to the world of the Bakersfield sound and country music uh, in general. Um, 50 years from now, what do you hope people will remember about Red Simpson? Oh, that I was a good entertainer and songwriter. I'll probably just be dusty. <laughs> wow. <laughs> ashes to ashes and dust to dust. <laughs> well, I think your legacy as a songwriter is cemented in stone for all time yeah and, and oh, thank you red we uh you know just got to thank you for spending some time with us today it's it's an honor to, to speak with someone who's been a part of uh so much great music and and particularly a, a musical history that i have uh, such a passion for and uh you're always very very gracious and kind and, and uh, we appreciate your time thank you thank you for listening to find out more about our guests stream episodes get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list 
so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.